Thanks for listening to this sermon from the Image Church. Find out more about us and our weekly services at imagejesus.com. Father, we are grateful that you sent your son to take on flesh and live among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only son of the Father. God, we sing these songs because the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through your son, Jesus Christ. God, that during this season, no matter what we face, no matter what circumstances are at home waiting on us, that the story has been finished with the last chapter, and it reads, you have won. You loved us, you have redeemed us, you have taken on our sins upon yourself. You lived the life that we should have lived. You died the death that we should have died. You took the wrath we rightly deserved. And God, we say thank you because of that. God, we say hallelujah to your name because you are worthy. We ask right now that you would ready our hearts to hear from your word. That those who don't know you will be drawn because Jesus Christ is just that majestic and beautiful. Because also, those who do know you, that they will be uplifted in their faith and encouraged that even in their shortcomings, their identity is in Christ Jesus. God, allow your Holy Spirit to be here. Work in a mighty and powerful way. And let the people of God say amen. 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 You may have a seat. I am the man infamously known as Killer Cam. Um, I serve at Shiloh Church. I'm glad to be here. I serve as the student pastor. I uh, want to say thank you to Jay Harris. Give Jay a round of applause. Great elder, solid man for the gospel. Thank you uh, to Matt Jensen for the invitation to preach here. Pastor Matt is a very cool, very cool pastor, and he has an even cooler car. Um, I was jealous coming in here just looking at it. Um, but I want to preach to you guys today, um, the topic is joy. More importantly, um, the title of this message is really a history of redemption. And we're going to talk about joy and how we can have joy in our lives now during this Christmas season. Uh, it's ironic because if you talk to most psychiatrists and counselors, they would tell you that this is the season, ironically, where most people are depressed. Everybody has this festive spirits about them, but yet many of us feel like we're going to a wedding and a funeral at the same time. We know that we're supposed to be excited. We know this is about the time of Jesus Christ. It's more than just about gifts and candy canes and ornament on the trees. But how do you tell me that, Pastor Cam, when I have all this stuff in my heart? I have all these challenges meeting me at my house. There's... I mean, many of us, if we just be real with us, ourselves, we have struggles that make it hard to be joyful during the Christmas season. And that is the narration that we actually find the Christmas story. I mean, it really is somewhat of a hood story. It's like you boys in the hood are juice. I mean, it's all kinds of really hard stuff. You have a teenage woman who is pregnant. And she's telling her fiance that it's by the Holy Spirit. That sounds like an episode off of Maury. 
You have Joseph, whose people are talking about him. Your, your wife, fiance, is knocked up with this kid, and maybe we should just stone her and kill her according to the law. You have the state of Israel that is in political bondage at this time under Roman oppression, and there is spiritual decline where the most religious leaders are nothing but that, religious with no relationship with God. And wouldn't you know it that the blank page on your Bible that says New Testament represents 400 years of silence. God, we've been in bondage. God, we've been in captivity. God, our religious leaders are nothing but hypocrites. We find these characters, Mary and Joseph, and the whole time God has been silent for 400 years, and he breaks open the pages of the Bible with the cry of a baby. It says, let joy be restored to them. I want to be an encouragement to you to let you know that in spite of our imperfect and flawed past, God has a history of redemption for you. Amen? It's in Matthew chapter 1. Now, I know Pastor Matt just preached Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to try my best to meet his standard. But if you would read it with me, it's Matthew chapter 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It, it's a fall asleep chapter. This is a chapter that you skipped over in your quiet time. This is a chapter that makes you drool on your pillow when you're trying to get that last minute read because it's a whole bunch of difficult names and people we don't know. But in fact, God wants to speak through you through this text so you may have joy. It says in the book of the gene genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadad, and Amminadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. I'm falling asleep already. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jeram, and Jeram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheetatel, and Sheetatel, the father of Zerubbabel. I'm not making this up. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Jay, got some names for the next child that's on the way. Um, go ahead and hook that up. Uh, and El Eliakim, the father of the father of Achim. Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to the Babylon, to Christ, 14 generations. This is a long introduction. This is a long prologue. And, and what Matthew is doing, he's writing to Jews to let them know that Jesus is our king. 
He says you can trace his bloodline. He's purebred. He is the king of the Jews. This is the king who's going to redeem the kingdom. But more importantly than that, he's writing to let us know that the end is happening. That the summation of history is on its way. That this 400 years of silence is ending with, ironically, not an army, not a political takeover, but a baby in a manger who is going to redeem our souls and be Jesus, the Savior of our people. And I want you to know that the main points of this is that you can have an imperfect past, a flawed past. You can be a compromised Christian. And yet God still has a history of redemption for you from this text. First point is this. Despite our past, God still keeps his promises. Where do I get that? Go with me back to verse 1. It says, in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now you have to have some Bible knowledge. Who is the son of David? David. Who is David? Who's Abraham? Now we read in the Bible that the promises were given to these men. 2 Samuel 17 said that David would have a kingdom and his throne would last forever. You read the book of Genesis, Abraham is supposed to be the redeemer and the father of many nations. And yet, I read that with some squinted eyes because David and Abraham weren't necessarily worthy of those promises, were they? David, at a time where kings were supposed to go to war, is sitting on the lazy boy, chilling at his house, flipping through the channel until something catches his eye. It's this woman named Bathsheba who is bathing on the roof, and he calls her in, and he cheats with her. He commits adultery because she is married, and they end up having a child. And to cover it all up, David ends up having the wife, the husband, assassinated in war. Now, that's not, I mean, that's deep. Adultery, assassination, and yet the Bible still says that he was a man after God's own heart. Abraham's not any better. I mean, he has the stat sheet of being the, the father of many nations. God's calling him out of uh, Canaan, and he, he believes God. He's willing to sacrifice his own God, uh, uh, son for God. But Abraham is a liar. He lies to kings who wants to take his wife and tells the kings that that's just my sister. They're liars. They're stealers. They're cheaters. And I know I fall into those categories many times. If you're with me, say Amen. And yet God still says that he is going to keep their promises because it's not necessarily about their past. It's about the cross. I want to encourage you during this Christmas season, we don't only have external factors of, of debt and bills and how am I going to get enough gifts and how am I going to uh, make it at the dinner table with that uncle I just can't stand. We have those external factors, but there's also the internal factors of look at 2014 and my sloppy Christian lifestyle. Look at 2014 and the way I've been compromised. Look at 2014 and the idols in my own heart. And God is saying to you that the past is a prison to those who walk in it. That he wants your future to be defined not in what you do, but what God has done at the cross 2,000 years ago. In this opening text, God is saying that David and Abraham have no merit of their own. Their only merit is them being connected and unified to the history of redemption in Jesus Christ. And it's the same for you. 
It's the same for you with your addiction that you've been battling. And you made the resolution that 2014, it would be over with. And you're, you're on the brink of saying, I'm just going to give up. It's the same for you who have been going through faith trial and faith trial and faith trial. And you say that you want to get up, uh, give up. And God is saying, don't live to your past. Look to the future. Despite it all, God has a future for you. But not only that, despite our past, God still executes his plan. Look at these interesting verses, these interesting names. Verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zareb by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadad, and Amenadad the father of Nashon. You see, even in verse 5, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And then you see Mary. You see women in the genealogy. That was atypical of Jewish tradition. They would not include women in their genealogies unless there was something very interesting or tied or pertinent to this text. And here's the thing that God is showing us that despite our past, God still executes his plans because just look at these women's history. You may not know it, but Tamar shows up. She is the daughter-in-law to Judah who is the ancestor to Jesus. Tamar keeps on getting married, and every time she gets married, somebody, namely her husband, dies. To a point where the family says, well, something must be wrong with this girl. And she really becomes exiled from the family, but Tamar has not had the chance to have a son or heir to the throne. So what she does is she dressed herself up as a prostitute to have her father-in-law, Judah, sleep with her. This woman would have been well known by people who are reading this and looked down upon. Then you have Rahab, who was a Gentile prostitute. You find her in Joshua where the spies go to see the land and God uses a prostitute to redeem his people. Then you have Bathsheba who was also in this genealogy who I just told you cheated with David. You have Mary who was scorned upon as this 16 and pregnant young woman. These women were outcasts and sinners, but God still used them in the history of redemption. And some of you are sitting in the same spots as all these characters. Maybe you're like Tamar. You are exiled from your family. Maybe you are like Rahab, and you feel that you have some sexual shame that's committed against you, or you have some, some uh, just lust and all kinds of things dealing in your heart. Maybe you're like Mary, where people are talking bad about you. Maybe you are like Bathsheba, where your whole story is that of cheating, lying, and cover-ups. And, and God is saying, no matter what it is, you find a place in the history of redemption. No matter what you've done or how long you've been doing it, God is willing to forgive you and use you in his plan. I want to encourage you guys with this. Your, your past may be painful, but it's purposeful. Your past may be painful, but it's purposeful. There was a young boy who had got a boat for Christmas, a sailboat, little toy sailboat, went out to the lake and was playing with it. And before he knew it, the sailboat was out of his reach. 
And he went to his older brother and asked his older brother to help him get his sailboat back to the shore. And his older brother walked up to it, began to think, and then he started to pick up stones and was throwing the stones. And the little boy went to his older brother, was grabbing on him, saying, no, don't throw the stones because then you will sink the ship. And the older brother just kept on throwing the stones. Before he knew it, he saw that the stones were landing on the other side of the sailboat and it was causing waves to make the sailboat come back to shore. And that is the same way God uses stones in our life. He uses stones of affliction, stones of suffering, stones of death during the holidays, stones of being an outcast, all that he may bring us closer to the shore and to his presence. Your past may be painful, But it's purposeful. The last point that I leave you with this. Despite our past, God still redeems his people. Verse 17. Verse 16, I'm sorry. He says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Look with me in verse 21 as well. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to fix the history of our redemption. Acts 4.12 says there's no name under which anybody can be saved. John 14, verse 6 says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Philippians 2.9 says that he's the name that's above every name. He is the only name who can give us joy during this holiday season, even when we're facing external and internal turmoil. Jesus means the Lord Saves. We see this in this text. In this text, if you go home and study all of these names, you will see you have everything from fallen kings to forgotten prostitutes. God says it doesn't matter who it is, no matter what you're dealing with, that God has included us in the history of redemption. And I find it so ironic that the Bible is so transparent with the fallenness of God's people, then why are we so hypocritical about it? God is willing to put David on the line. God is willing to put Moses on the line and talk about they were murderers, stealers, cheaters, and there's there's only one hero of the faith, and his name is Jesus. And that if I can read this and identify with the brokenness, it's not the heroes of the faith, it's the hero of the faith. And God is saying, stop being so hypocritical. It doesn't matter what you have locked up inside that God can handle it. You know, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's just and faithful to forgive us. I feel like sometimes we read that text and we try to translate it in our own versions. We try to say, if I hide my sin, then it'll be okay. Some of us try to mistranslate it and say that if we confess our sins, then God's mad at us. And I shouldn't read my Bible. And I probably shouldn't come to church in case a prophet comes and then calls me out on my sin. But the Bible says, no, look, if you confess it, he's just and faithful to forgive you and he'll cleanse you. What I get from Matthew 1 all the way down to 17 is number one, that no matter what your story is, 
Jesus came to redeem it and give you joy. Some of you may know the name of Dorothy Sayers. She was a novelist. She wrote mystery novels, and she was also a great Christian intellect. And she uh, wrote a series of stories and novels that were really uh, before Sherlock Holmes the, called the Lord Peter Whimsey series. And Peter Whimsey was an a eccentric uh, detective. He was a very essential character. And as the novel progressed, though, as she began to write more and more stories in this world, she began to notice that the character she created, Peter Whimsey, became self-absorbed, eccentric, and joyless. And so, Dorothy Sayers ends up writing a character into the story known as Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane is a very intelligent young woman. She graduates from Oxford. Harriet Vane also writes novels. And Harriet Vane is written into the story so that Peter Whimsey would have joy and be a more complete character. Now, what's interesting about this is that Harriet Vane becomes the wife to Lord Peter Whimsey, and Lord Peter Whimsey gets joy. But when you read the biography of Dorothy Sayers, you will begin to find out that Harriet Vane and Dorothy Sayers were very similar. Harriet Vane was a novelist. Dorothy Sayers was a novelist. Harriet Vane was very intellectual. Dorothy Sayers was very intellectual. Harriet Vane was the, one of the a graduate uh, of Oxford. Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. And so what you begin to realize is that Dorothy Sayers created this world and saw a character that she fell in love with. And she saw that that character had become eccentric and joyless. And so what Dorothy Sayers did, she wrote herself into the story so that the character she fell in love with might have joy, peace, and completion. Now that isn't new, is it? God creates the world. He creates the crowning creation, mankind. Mankind rebels against him and is worthy of wrath and destruction, and we are living a life that is so joyless. But yet, in Matthew chapter 1, what we see, no matter of these jacked up stories, God writes himself in. He writes himself in into the person of Jesus Christ who takes on flesh to live among us and so that he might complete us and give us joy. More importantly, he, he, he lives a perfect life that we could never live. He dies on the cross, the death we deserve. He took the wrath that we deserve. And then not only that, he put him in the grave, but then he rises to give authority to his message. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father now, and he's soon to come again. Jesus Christ has written himself into our story. So that you can have joy, so that you can have everlasting life, so that you can have a relationship and not merely just a list of religious rules. This Christmas, won't you accept the greatest gift? Won't you understand that his story is a history of redemption? To conclude this service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a visual representation of the gospel. The bread represents Jesus Christ's body being broken for us. They whipped him 39 lashes 
with a whip that had metal tips and would literally catch his flesh and rip it off. He took that physical anguish, but more importantly than that, the wrath of God fell on him on the cross. To where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you would never have to say it? His blood represents the pure blood of a lamb that would be slain on our behalf. It is the pure blood because he never lied. No deceit was found in his mouth. He was found without sin. And when we drink that, we realize that that blood was shed on our behalf and it represents what should have happened with us. As we come to the Lord's table, think about this. Jesus wrote himself into the story to die for the villain. The hero came to die for the villain. If that doesn't give you joy, I pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to give you strength to meditate on that throughout the week. Because even if seats are empty at the Christmas table because of death, even if there's, there's no Christmas gifts under the tree, in fact, you don't even have a Christmas tree. Because death is struggling and strangling you. Because your marriage is on the brink of divorce. That true joy is still available because the hero has written himself into the story. And I read the last page of this novel. And he has the victory. Let's pray. Father, we are rejoicing because of this good news. Sin, death, and hell itself was overtaking our context, but you wrote our, yourself into the story that we might have redemption. God, we thank you that despite our imperfect and flawed past, you have written us into the story, and the only identity that we have is being in connection with you. We're not marked by our addictions. We're not marked by our failures. We're marked by the blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. God, help us to rejoice and to have joy in knowing you. Help us to look at you as the supreme treasure and the supreme joy. Heal us of any heartache. Help us to know that at the last day you will wipe every tear away. And that we will sing a song in Revelations 15 that says, Your righteous acts have been revealed. God, we give glory and thanks to the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. It's in his name we pray. Amen.